welcome to Board Game Binge. The place where we bring you bite-sized, bingeable board game content across the industry. I'm your host, James Staley, and in this episode, we're chatting with David Norman, president of Goliath Games. Its iconic consumer brands range from Rummy Cub, Triominoes, Word Search, Pop the Pig, Doggy Doo, Gooey Louie, Catch the Fox, and many more. Goliath is the third largest game manufacturer in North America and has been one of the world's fastest growing independent toy companies. David, welcome to The Binge. It is a pleasure to have you here. How are you? It's just, I'm psyched to join and it's nice to be bingeable content and something people can see. I'd like to be binged for a little bit. I feel like a, I feel like a Netflix show or something. I hope after the, your, your listeners listen to this, they go back and listen to your first 10. Yeah, there you go. Exactly. They like get that. the David episode and then it's like, oh, I need more. I just need more of the binge. Give me more, more, more. So David, uh, Goliath is obviously a massive, massive company. Um, I think it goes without saying, probably most of our listeners have one of your games on their shelves, uh, either now or have in the past. I know I personally, I have when I was going through the list, I'm like, oh my gosh, I didn't know they did that game. I didn't know they did that game. That's on my shelf. That one's on my shelf. So I want to kind of take a step back. Where did all this begin? Like I, my understanding is the oil industry of all places. So you've got the Goliath origin story and you've got the David origin story. I'm going to give them both to you. All right. So Goliath started with an Israeli guy named Adi Galad, who was an engineer and he met this Dutch girl and they found the game of Rummy Cup. And she wanted to go back to Holland and they really liked Rummy Cub, particularly her mother liked Rummy Cub. They brought it back in their suitcases, like dozens of copies in their suitcases and started reselling them in Holland. And for the first 200 pieces, they had a great business because they sold it to all their friends and families. And then starting at about 201, nobody wanted to buy it because they hadn't heard of it. And so they're really struggling for a while. They ended up selling their car and to to buy more Rummy Cub games to actually sell door to door. And finally, a couple of retailers gave them a shot. And eventually that game, I believe, became the best-selling game in the history of the toy industry per capita. So they sold something like 800,000 pieces in Israel. And Israel, think of it as the GDP of New Jersey. So maybe 15 or 20 times that number would be a U.S. number. So that would be, what, 16 million or something like that. So it became a huge hit, and that's how they got off the ground. So for me, I went to, I was an engineer. I hated engineering. So then I went to business school. I decided I liked business. Then I went to the one company where my wife and I could get a job in the same city. So I started working for Exxon, which is not very sexy, I'm, I'm sure to all of your listeners. But <laughs> I got that job. My wife said, hey, David, I'm tired of being a banker. I want to go into medicine. I got into school in San Francisco and I talked to my employer and I'm like, look, guys, I got to go. And they said, well, there's one job in San Francisco you can have in all of Exxon. I said, I'll take it. And they said, it's going to be a lubricant salesperson. And I was just like, oh my goodness, what does a lubricant salesperson do? And I have this, I actually have a business card that says I'm a lubricant sales engineer, which got me a lot of points at the bars. Um, And one of the main things they wanted me to do was to sell Exxon oil to Alaskan fishermen and take this we're in the early 90s here, so it's right after the Valdez spill. Oh boy. And you might imagine I wasn't very successful. 
I actually would, I, I would, I went to this trade show, it was called Fish Expo. And I went around and they, they go through this list and I get there and I'm like, here's my oil. My oil's better than this other guy's oil. And they're like, yeah, where's my check? Because I just, I just passed by all these law companies that'll help me sue Exxon for all the money I lost as a fisherman because I couldn't sell the stuff. Yeah. And so um, needless to say, although it was a fun job, my passion was not in it. And I leaped at the chance to join the games industry. I started by breaking in literally to the MBA schools at Stanford and Berkeley. I dressed up like a student, whatever. I, I was more hippie when I went to Berkeley, more buttoned up when I went to Stanford and went through their job ads until they kicked me out and they kicked me out of both of them. I found a job for a company called University Games. I took the most junior level job in there, which was, I don't know, uh, I got all the sales accounts that everyone else had failed at. And they said, these are yours. And over the course of my 12 years there, I rose up fairly quickly to be the VP of sales for that company. I left and just decided I wanted to do something different. I, I thought I could run my own company, but I ran into the guys at Goliath who said, hey, we have all these great games. So we've never been able to sell them in America. Do you want to do it? So we formed a partnership to sell their games in the U.S. And that's how we got started. Wow. I mean, just to take a quick step back there, the breaking into the universities to check the job board. I think that's a great example of, you know, doing what it takes. Right. And uh, if, if you have the drive, you're not going to let something stop you like. Well, I don't have access to these uh, these job boards. I'll find a way to. I, I didn't. I didn't think I was going to go to the federal penitentiaries for that. <laughs> and I heard the white collar prisons weren't all bad, so um, <laughs> I didn't think I was taking such a big risk. And the amazing thing was that I found such a junior level job after yeah. going in there. You think if you break into the Stanford Business School, you're going to find a a big important job, and that's not the one I found. So was it like a passion? So was there any passion towards games at that point? Or was it literally, this is like, this is the job I so got? So I grew up as a guy. So my go-to game for if I take all the Goliath ones out, which are obviously my top 500. Sure. But if I went to number 501, it would be Scrabble. Mm. So I grew up playing Scrabble at least every week. And I love playing board games. It was kind of the one thing that would keep me occupied. And so, you know, I got to the point where I would, We'd play Scrabbles. I'd memorize the back of the tiles. So I knew where all the good letters were. like I would learn everything about them. And I was so into it. So when I left Exxon, I, had, I it was around the time the big movie came out. And I was just like, look, I'm going to do something fun. And I don't care about the money. I don't care about the title. I just feel like if I'm going to be good at something, it's going to be doing something enjoy. So I really do enjoy board games. I do have a goal that I've set for myself, which is to play a new game every day of the year. I may not catch every day, but I want 365 games by the end of the year. So you can check in on me at the end and see how I do. So it is a passion. How do you do? So that that's a huge goal because I've heard of people setting like one a week, right? like 52. So 365 is a lot of games. And is these, are these games like, uh, like, how do you choose? Like, is it from your own, uh, from the portfolio of the company? Is it from just going to the so, local Walmart? So of or? them, of them, I would say less than 10% will be ones in our line that maybe I don't remember or yeah. from our archive. I buy every new game that the major retailers get. So I spend thousands of dollars on new games. And we actually have someone who helps teach me, you know, mm -hmm. here in the office. And that's one of her 
one of her jobs is to teach me how to play these games so that I just have time to do it. Um, but it's a fun, fun thing to do. And I play all genres. I play preschool games. I play intense strategy games. And so it's a fun to get the gamut because one of my jobs now with Goliath is I'm in charge of development of all other board games. And I feel like I've got to know something in all these different genres for a company that really tries to be a little bit of everything to at least have played some of them. So I have some understanding of what I like. I don't, what I think consumers like and don't. In terms of positioning is the, and I'll, for the people who are watching uh, live or even uh, on the replay, um, I'm just kind of going past the the website here, which shows like triominoes and you've even got the Rubik's cube in your telestrations, all these different games, which most people know. And I think most people probably know these games because they're available at their local department store, right? Either a Walmart or, um, you know, or Target or so forth. Is, is this the primary area where Goliath is focused or are, is there an intent to kind of branch, um, you know, across as many different kind of distribution touch points as possible? All right. Let me answer that question in parts. Yeah. So one of the things when you went to Crown and Andrews, that's our Australia company. And I appreciate yep. you adjusting because our website's down at this exact second. No but, so we have 13 different countries that sell products for Goliath. So some of those products are ours and some of them we distribute for others. So telestrations that you mentioned came from USAopoly mm. and we distribute that in most of our markets. So we're their European distribution arm for that. So one of our strategies is to find the very best products for that market. And it may not be one in our portfolio or not. So you'll see games like Rubik's Cube in Australia, which is a Spin Master property, which we've distributed for them down there. So there's a big list of them. But for us and what we're trying to do, the strategy is much more interesting. We believe, and if you look at kind of the breadth of our portfolio, I'm laughing because I see a squirrel game back there, James. <laughs> and we are also, I want you to know, in the squirrel game business. Oh, I love so we it. have this game called Chomp and Charlie that you feed them acorns until they poop all the way out. And this is an example of one of the categories that we're really good at called skill and action games. So yeah. it's a big piece of plastic that's a game for a kid with rules, but it's also a toy, I guess, that goes mm -hmm. through there and lots of different things with it. And I would say most retailers probably have between five and 10 SKUs from us in this category of games. Yeah. And it's one area where we focus when we're the market leader in that thing. So we really want to grow there. We have what you said earlier in the podcast, family games that everybody knows. So in the US and Holland and Australia and Spain, we sell Rummy Cup. You know, we bought Jax in 2017, which makes Sequence, which is one of the best known games. So we're really big yeah. in family. And then we've got a great presence in adult too. Um, we do um, one of my favorites. What did I do with it? Um, Shit Happens is one of yep. our games. We also sell the Unsolved Case Files, which if you haven't played one are really cool. You get just a mound of evidence thrown at you and you've got to solve them. So we are in almost every single category, I would say, besides heavy strategy. Heavy strategy is not a place we're in, but we're in party. And we, I guess if you ask for our strategy, one of them is we really want to dominate that kid space. Yeah. We want... We want you to go to that section and understand that you're buying a Goliath game. And I know that's really hard to do. 
to make the manufacturer mean something. But at the end of every one of our commercials, you'll hear by Goliath. Gotcha. And so we try to we try to dominate that within family. Family is the best place actually to make a board game, in my opinion. When you look at the trivial pursuits of the world, the pictionaries of the world, the sequences of the world, the rummy cubs of the world, if you make a hit there, that's like an annuity. It just yeah. keeps going and going and going and going where most other categories don't. And so it's nice for me to wake up and start each season knowing that if I just look at what sold or didn't sell the year before, I don't have to think about rummy cub or sequence. You know, I know that or mastermind, you know, I know those will continue in the assortment and grow. And then we're really making great progress in the adult space, which in my opinion is the fastest growing area of board games. And so the answer is we're doing a little bit everywhere. Um, and we're looking at the micro trends, I guess, to see which area we really want to go to. In these, uh, these, I'm going to give the two, two classes that you just mentioned. One is the Rummy Cub, which I had when I was uh, growing up, as well as uh, Mastermind. Mastermind is actually, I think, is one of the first games I was gifted as a kid. Right? Mm-hmm. But these are very, very old titles. And so how, as a company, have you guys approached bringing those forward into the next generation and, uh, and make them relevant to kids these days? Is it carry over from the memories and the nostalgia with people like myself to have my own kids that, you know, I remember playing this when I was a kid. So now I want to get for them or how have you guys approached that? So marketing games is a fantastic subject yeah. in terms of how that works has dramatically changed in my 25 years of the industry. You've had a period where it was all demonstrations. Like you go to stores, you play them with people. If you played enough times, people will get it. At some point that broke away and then TV was the best. You spend a big budget on TV, you have a big advertising, you reach a lot of people, you do it like that. Then more recently, I think a lot of it's changed to social media. You want to have a Facebook presence. You want to have TikTok. You want to have Instagram. You want to have digital advertisements. You want to have advertisements on Amazon that have really grown it. Um, And then the thing that hasn't changed is word of mouth. So the good things about the very best games in the market, and I would put Mastermind, Sequence, and Rummy Cub in that, is they're going to grow in sales every year just because people tell other people about them. They're so popular and grow. So I don't necessarily have to think of the most innovative thing to make those successful. Now, we still try. Like, as an example, we did a, a championship of Sequence on the top of the Eiffel Tower in November of this year. And so that's kind of like an idea to have a splash and put that together. We're actually looking to do a cruise, like a sequence cruise where you play with all your people and the winner gets, you know, a hundred thousand dollars or something like that is in the pipeline. So you're trying for innovative stuff, but those classics, I find if they've made it, those are probably games for the most part started in the eighties. So we're going to call them 40 years old. You, you actually don't have to pull them up. People are doing that job for you. And as a company, you seem to have uh, acquired a lot of businesses, right? Um, has this, as you've sought out these different businesses to acquire, has the key criteria been to help you become the, the leader in certain segments? Or how have you guys kind of chosen these different companies to merge into the portfolio? So I think we've had over 10 acquisitions in the last mm-hmm. seven years, and they uh, they accomplished different things. Like we bought Vivid in the UK. I don't know if you know Vivid. 
but at one time Vivid was the largest toy company in the UK and is still a top, I think, 15 toy company. And we bought that company for two things. One, the intellectual property that they had, but also distribution in the UK where we were never there. When we bought Crown and Andrews in Australia, it was the same thing. We didn't have our own presence there. So that was distribution. When we bought Pressman, we already had Goliath here. And so in that case, they had brands that were really strong. They had, that's where Masterminds came from. That's where Triominos came from. That's where Rummy Cup came from. So it gave us some great products to like kind of go through our existing network. And so you, the very best acquisitions, in my opinion, are ones that have really strong IP. Because when you buy Jax and you get Sequence, that's an amazing platform. So that is kind of the number one goal is to have IP that we think is global, that we can do more with in the company that had it. But the secondary reason is also, has often been distribution for us. So the IP, you have the equity that comes with the, you know, the, the title. Um, distribution, I guess, gives you the speed, right? Because technically you could build, I mean, you, you're not going to create a new Rummy Cub. I mean, you either get Rummy Cub or you don't, right, as, as an IP. But distribution is something you could technically go and build on your own. It's just going to take you a lot longer. So in this case, I guess it's helped you get I guess, well, speed to market. Well, like, cases, well as an example, it's like when Goliath came to the U.S. and tried to start, no one would take our stuff. Yeah. And so we had to build, you had to build a base. And you're not going to start with 20 games with me today. You know, my process, the first year before we bought them, they'd done $40,000. The next year with all my hard work starting in July, we got up to 167000 There was no way to get from 40000 to $40 million overnight. No. So if you have that distribution, it's a lot easier to add 10 SKUs into the marketplace than if you're starting from scratch. So you are right the time is a big chunk of it, particularly if you have IPs that you really think will work in that market. In some cases, I imagine with, and I look at other industries with mergers and acquisitions, uh, often there's cases where um, it's not a completely new set of things that come in. Sometimes there's some overlap, right? Either sales team overlap, marketing overlap, you know, you already have say a vendor code at uh, a target, Right, and now you have two vendor codes. So how how did you guys handle that in terms of merging it? So it's really funny. I'll tell you. I've actually never told anyone this story before. But when we bought Pressman, Pressman was a much bigger deal with us. And I wondered, what are we going to do? Like, are the retailers? The retailers only want to give me thirty minutes or an hour or whatever. Now I've got like twice as much or three times as much stuff to sell. What am I going to do? So we actually hired a guy, Jeff Pinsker, and we made him president of Pressman. And we got the synergies on the back end of the warehousing and all of that stuff, but we kept the trade marketing separate. We had uh, separate booths at Toy Fair. We had separate booths at, at um, you know, the major shows. And it didn't take very long for our retailers because they're so smart to figure out that, you know, you guys are the same company, right? I've seen the press release. So that lasted for about a year or two. And then we folded all that together. And then we came up with enough innovative product that we kind of earned our spot to have a little more time to tell our story as opposed to getting crammed into the 30 minute appointment. But yeah, with vendor numbers, it's really interesting. If you have a vendor code at a retailer, they look at the two vendor codes and say, I want the one with the best terms. That's the one that I think yeah. is the one we need to go to. And we're like, oh, that's not good. Um, so it's been, those are interesting negotiations as you go through it to try to figure it out. 
they always, they always want to make sure your pricing is the same uh, from vendor to vendor because buyers move, <laughs> right? Oh, and yeah. And they'll bring no. their knowledge of pricing from one to the other and say, wait well, a second, guys. I, find, I actually yeah. find for a salesperson, um, there, there's always a joke in the toy industry that product is king, queen, and court jester, meaning it's the most important thing. But I would actually argue in dealing with your retailers, trust is the most important. Yeah. And you just really can't screw your retailers because they have long memories and it's not the right thing to do. And yeah. so you want to price people fairly. You want to take care of them fairly. If your product doesn't sell, you want to know that if I'm like, look, I really believe in this. I need your support. And if it doesn't sell, you'd better be there to help them. And in our case, we always are. Um, so that makes it a, a good partnership that we have. Innovation is Goliath doing internally versus acquiring. It, like, how does that balance look right now as a company for you? So it's really interesting. My job changed over a little more than the last year ago. I got an additional title, title which was a global chief marketing officer for games, which meant that I'm in charge of all the board game development that we do globally. So whether that's bringing in products from inventors, getting licenses, going to new categories, distributing stuff, that all kind of flows through me. And we have a lot of different ways ideas come to us. One idea is you get a license, you wanna make a game with it. Another idea is you have an inventor and the inventor pitches a concept, we take that concept on and we refine it, make it and put it out there. And another one is internal development. So we have a team that does internal development. They're kind of on a Chinese wall basis around the other invention staff and all of that. And our goal is to make more stuff that way because we believe controlling our IP is good. You know, like if you have a game and you sell a bunch, and then you don't meet your minimum this year, they can, you know, the IP owner can take it back. Yeah. And whereas if you have your own, you still have it. Now, fortunately for us, we have really good relationships with our inventors. And we tell them straight up, like, look, this one's in a down cycle, but we think we can bring it back in three years. Can we have the shot to do that? And for the most part, they say, okay, I get it as long as you can kind of articulate a plan to me. But it's a mixed bag where all the innovation comes from. But definitely coming up with our own IP is part of who we are. And a lot of it's because we have kind of our ears to the ground. So we know what's happening at the consumer basis, at a retail basis. We actually have a consumer insights lab now built into our office where you have people come in and play our games and we show them a planogram, what draws your eye to it and why, yeah. what did you buy? You bought this game, why? So we get, we have all of that feedback going on with our new stuff too which really helps us and makes us feel like we can develop some stuff on our own too. Where would you say Goliath as a company is headed and, and yourself as part of that? Like you're obviously you've taken this thing from, you know, 40,000, 40 million is, is huge, huge growth. Um, I'm sure you've got your set, your eyes set on the future as to what that next stage looks like as the company grows and, 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 you know, how you're going to make that happen. Yeah. So there's a couple of things that, uh, the, the Mr. Glad, who founded it, Adi, and his son now, who's the CEO, really want to grow. You know, they want to build, build, build the business. So we've done yeah. a couple of things that are interesting. We hired a guy in November of 20, I guess, named Doug Wadley, who is a former muckety-muck, as I call him at Mattel, one of the senior guys. And we brought him in to develop a toy team to try to build us up in toys the same way we've been built up in games. Because, mm. you know... Games is in the neighborhood of 10% of the size of the toy industry. If you want to get really big, 
it's a lot easier to also play in other categories. So we've separated all that development from the games development, and they're busy building a toy line that will launch in 22. We've also launching in outdoors. We hired another guy named Jim Balaam, who is a muckety muck at um, Swimways. And so he's working to help us build an outdoor presence. And the goal is to become a company that grows from, we're now hundreds of millions of dollars in sales to over a billion. And so we're gonna grow both in the game space by doing that and also through the toy space. And it's, it's a really exciting process to be able to do. And it's been really fun for me. I've had some of the most fun I've had in the industry, um, really helping develop these games, launching it. And I'm very, very excited about our 22 line of what we've produced, the retailer support we have for it, and what I think it's going to do at market. Sounds like you're looking to take it from being a games company to almost just like a, a company that sells fun, right? Yes. Yeah. We, we kind of, our initial thing is back when there was a Toys R Us, we felt like if Toys R Us sold it, we could sell it. We could get in those categories if we we're in the mm-hmm. right thing. But yeah, we're, we're very strategic on the toy side. We're like in games, I think we can do almost everything in toys we don't. Like as an example, we don't think we're going to come up with Lego 2.0 and go fight with them. That's not in our category of where we want to be. So we strategically looked at white space in the industry where we think we could really innovate and grow and put a focus on going into those areas. And Doug's leading that team really expertly to to kind of put it through through the crucible of trying to find the very best stuff we can in those areas. And where do you see your your growth? Like where do you see your personal growth? So, well, my growth has been, you know, going from someone who ran the North American market to someone who is really in charge of the marketing strategy and product development for the entire company, which has been so much fun. That's why I play all the games. Yeah. But I'm actually going to make a big change that I actually haven't told people about. So you can break it here on the podcast, but I'm going to be leaving Goliath. And I've, yeah, I've decided that, you know, my wife, who I talked about earlier is a doctor. She spent two years dealing with COVID and all of that stuff. And she's burnt out. And I've been working really hard on that. We're mid fifties and we're like, is this what we want to do the next 10 years? Or do we want to try something different? And so my wife and I looked at each other and said, let's travel around the world. Let's figure out some things, have some fun, do that. So we're going to travel the world and then we're going to come back and look at a new adventure. I think for me, that'll be in the board game space. That's my real passion. So I imagine I'll be developing some of my own products, probably looking to collab with people to come up with the very best products. I plan to try to launch some in the not forever future. And then my wife um, wants to start a nonprofit. So she wants to help caregivers Caregivers have so much responsibility in medicine now, and she wants to help them avoid burnout, really learn how to care for people better because doctors aren't available 24-7. So we'll see how all that plays out, and we'll see how long we need to decompress. And I realize for you listeners out there who aren't in the board game business, it doesn't sound like there's much to decompress from because I've got a pretty good position where I am, but I'm, I'm really psyched to go on this journey with my wife and then come back and See if I can see if I can rebuild something from from the bottom again. We'll see. How long is this this world travel going to go? Is this like a, it's it's in it's in years? a lot of debate. 
It's in a lot of debate with my wife right now because my wife says it's yours. And I'm like, "Mm, I don't know. Like, I just like my brain doesn't keep like, hey, I wonder if we could do a game like this or like that. Like, it just doesn't turn off. And so it'll be interesting. We, We have our first trip, our first two trips planned. I'm going to South America with her to Buenos Aires and Patagonia here in three weeks. Um, So we're going to do that to celebrate my youngest son graduating early from college. So there goes all that money. Um, And then after that, we have a six week trip road trip to California. We're going to drive it, do the whole Grand Canyon, all of that, see all of that. And then after that, Portugal's on the horizon. So we'll see how it all plays out and how the brakes work and all that. I don't really know. And um, it's probably until my wife gets sick of me. So we'll see. I could be soon. Well, it sounds like too, that having kind of that, that break, right? Uh, so, you know, transitioning from one thing into another obviously comes with a lot of overlap, right? And a lot of stress with that. And you know, it's tough to really focus on the either or as you're doing that transition, but being able to kind of take that clean break, decompress, you know, clear your mind, you know, and take the time you need before you get back at it, I'm sure will put you well positioned to quite frankly, whatever that next endeavor is, uh, both on the nonprofit side for your wife, as well as whatever you end up uh, choosing to do as well. Well, we're both proud to kind of leave on our own terms and uh, yeah. to decide to take this break. Like we're just sitting there, like, are we going to kill it for 60 to 80 hours a week so that we can go have fun when we're 65? And we're like, well, there's stuff we can do now that maybe we can't do then. And life has no guarantees, right? And you're all of us are the CEO of our own life to kind of decide who we want to be and what we want to do. And hoping someone else will do it for you is kind of a fool's game. So we're psyched to take this risk and, we always say, look, if we get tired of traveling the world, we can always work. That's true. You can always work. And when does this, uh, I guess, retirement uh, or semi-retirement, when does it begin? Is this like... So So one of the things when we started Goliath was we kind of planned for a day I would leave. Yeah. So I had to give them six months notice. But over that time, we've hired a new replacement for me for the U.S. office. His name is Peter Boutros. He's hmm. a well-established guy in consumer products. He actually just finished working for Sears where he was in charge of Kenmore. He had um, Die Hard under him until they sold it off in Craftsman Tools. So he really knows that space. Doug will take over my, my I'm very protective of my games team because the people are so awesome, yeah. but he'll, he'll get responsibility for that on the innovation side. So it really, I will work till the end of March or until they tell me that it, we've transitioned effectively and get the heck out the door. That's and we're good. Whenever those dates happen, they happen. Oh, that's awesome. Well, David, I want to wish you all the best uh, with this, uh, this new chapter of your life. I want to congratulate you, quite frankly, from what you've built uh, up to this point. Uh, I'm sure people following you are excited to kind of see what this next thing is going to be. And uh, I, I hope you take all the time you need to just get ready to come back and, and give us more. Well, the one thing I'll say is, is it's cool to have this journey for myself, but the most, the best thing of the journey for me is the people that have come with it. Yeah. You know, like my VP of sales, Ron Platt, who started with me 10 years ago, Melissa Anderson, who helped me with operations until recently leaving, Kelly Adams, who heads up my R&D team, Bill Van Yankee, who who's been just my rock doing it. I've made such great friendships along the way. 
of and great people who have been through the wars. And that's actually the thing that I think you take with you is those great relationships. And I'm thrilled to have them. And I'm thrilled that they'll stay, even if I'm not here day to day. They actually might get better. They may not want my help day to day as much. Well, I'm sure you've been an inspiration for them up to this point, and they'll take their learnings and uh, continue their own personal growth journeys. Uh, all cool. the best for uh, 2022, eh? All right. Thank you, man. I appreciate it. You take care. Cheers. This has been an episode of the Board Game Binge Podcast, hosted by James Staley, produced by James Staley and Mike Bruner, with original music by Nick Smith. If you would like to watch these interviews live, simply subscribe to our YouTube channel, Board Game Binge, and you'll get access to live interviews, giveaways, and interesting board game content from across the industry. I can't wait for you to join us. See you next time. Thank you.